0: Last week was a godly wife, and this week we're looking at a godly husband. Put the two together. What do you have as a godly marriage? I want to offer the same encouragement at the beginning here as last week. I know I know that our tendency is to say, well, I'm not married. This has nothing to do with me. But perhaps you will be married one day. Perhaps that will happen for you. Even if not, you have friends who are married. Undoubtedly, they tend to give you, seek you for counsel. Or perhaps, you know, want to, hey, could you help me out? Am I seeing this right? Could you tell me? What do you think about it? And so, as you Hear God's word and as we study God's word you become armed not just to defend against the enemy but also to encourage the beloved to encourage the brethren so you can point people in the right direction so that we can say here's what God calls us to so whether you're married or not I encourage you uh, we we know further that Paul writes in 1 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is beneficial for our lives. So let's keep that in mind as we look at 1 Peter this morning. Let's go ahead and read our text. If you would, please stand with us as we read God's Word together. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. This is the word of the living God. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have sung your praises We have worshipped you in song, and in prayer, and in study, in Sunday school, and now, Lord, we desire to hear from you, and not through some sensational, supernatural experience, although, of course, we would invite that, but we know that you speak to us through your word. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak clearly this morning. Uh, Moreover, that I would be the one who speaks clearly Lord, that you would use me this morning, that I would be a vessel for you to communicate your timeless truth to your people so that we could live lives that honor and glorify you. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Small caveat, men. um, I will say, along with you, that this text has challenged me as I prepared for it. As we teach God's Word, we always have to be the first ones who the spirit of the sword of truth cuts. Uh, it has to cut me first before, otherwise I'm just up here trying to hurt people's feelings, and that's not at all what we're after. So, men, if the sword of truth cuts this morning, it cut me first, and I feel you. I have a quote from A.W. Pink. Quote, Because the Christian is not his own, but bought with a price, he is to aim at glorifying God in every relation of life. Next to the church of God, his own home should be the sphere of his most manifest devotion to Christ. End quote. That is a deeply convicting thought. That in our home, this should be, next to our service to the church of God, that our home life, men, should be the place where our devotion to Christ is most manifest in our life. If we are truly to be faithful sojourners, if we are truly to live as aliens and exiles in this world, our church life and our home life should demonstrate this clearly. Our wives know us better than anyone else. And wives, I encourage you to keep your elbow at your side and not in your husband's side. This morning, as we go through this text, that was a joke. It didn't land. Okay. Our wives know us better than anyone else, and they see more than anyone else just how sanctified we are or not. Just how much we truly desire to love and honor the Lord Christ or not. Last week we covered what a godly wife looks like, and this, way, this week we're, we're looking at what a godly husband looks like. The idea being, like I said a bit ago, that if there's a godly husband and a godly wife, that you will have a godly marriage, a God-honoring marriage. Much has been said over the years in regards to complementarianism. In case you're not familiar with that $10 word, that is simply the belief that Scripture very clearly lays out different roles for men and women, specifically as it pertains to the home. This is not a man-made doctrine. This is simply taking what God said and applying it to life. Many men throughout history have indeed twisted and distorted this, both to the right and to the left. What do I mean by that? Some have taken this idea too far and alienated women and even put them down and used this beautiful doctrine of complementarianism, of of individual roles for the men and the women that God has ordained. They have taken this and begun to bludgeon women with it to where now women begin to feel like they're just a shadow, and they don't really have a unique role to play in God's story of redemption. They're just there to be the trophy wife, to look pretty on their husband's arm. And that could not be further from what complementarianism is about. That could not be further from what Scripture lays out clearly for us. So, because some see that, that there is real abuse that has taken place, They've gone too far to the left in saying that roles for men and women are for a different time and culture than today. That doesn't really apply to us today. That was for then. This is now. Now, women, you know, they have equal voting rights and this sort of thing. So all of these things are obliterated. And that, of course, is too far to the left because we know that God has ordained specific roles for men and for women, and those are for all time, because that's how it started in the garden. So what we want to do is we want to find where the truth is right down the the middle of what we realize and affirm is too far to the right and too far to the left. We want to be on the razor-thin line of truth where we realize and readily affirm That Scripture teaches different roles for men and women. This does not demean women or give men the right to lord over them. It's important that we understand the distinction. Complementarianism, the, the two different roles for men and women, this is not demeaning to women, and it's also not giving men the right to lord over women. You understand the distinction Because women hear this and they feel demeaned. And men hear this and might be empowered to say, well, you got to bow down to me to the things that I say. And both of those would not be the right reaction to what God ordains, but instead to say, yes, Lord, yes and amen. We want to be obedient to what you have designed for us. So how do we strike this balance then? especially as being sinful people and perhaps having learned certain ways of living, certain ways, maybe you didn't grow up with the greatest example of what a husband is to look like or a wife looks like. Maybe you didn't. If we're being honest, probably many of us did not. But how do we strike the balance as we apply? Women, you apply chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 to your life. Men, you apply verse 7 To your life. Certainly, the full counsel of God, but as it pertains to our context, that's what we're looking at. You see, our God is such a good God that He doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure this out. Instead, He gave us a book with His precious, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient words in it for us to live by. That's what Josh covered so well for us this morning in Psalm 119 is that this ought to be our delight. When we see what God prescribes for men and women, this shouldn't be a burden upon us, but we should say, I delight in your laws, one who finds riches. With that in mind, let's examine what Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say to men. We have three major headings today. Our first one, we want to see how a godly husband treats his wife. This is from part A and part B of this verse. Let's read it together. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What does an understanding way mean? Well, in the original, what Peter would have actually written was with knowledge, living with knowledge, or gnosis. Many of you will remember that word gnosis from gnosticism, secret knowledge. But gnosis is often just simply translated as knowledge. As a matter of fact, 27 of the 29 instances in the New Testament that this word is used, It is not translated understanding, it's translated knowledge, or know, or knowing. It is often used in reference to knowing God. As you'll recall, the the so-called Gnostics were obsessed with the idea of knowledge. But this, this specific hidden knowledge that you couldn't access unless you really were to abandon biblical fidelity... Just as one must have the Spirit to have knowledge of the Most High, the Gnostics hijacked that concept and replaced the Holy Spirit with enlightenment and knowledge of God with knowledge of some ethereal mystic knowledge. In Christianity, knowledge or gnosis is most often tied to the knowledge of God. Because there's truly nothing better than to know, than to know God. Peter says it this way in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The majority of times that you find this word it is in conjunction with the knowledge of God. Yet, is that what Peter is talking about here? He's, it's translated understanding. It's not saying, he didn't translate it, Why live with your wives in a knowledge way. Mainly because that would be poor grammar, wouldn't it? What was this guy thinking when he wrote that? Probably the more accurate understanding of what Peter is getting at is the understanding of the needs and concerns and yes, even limitations of your wife. I say this because Peter goes on to attribute the idea of a weaker vessel to women. He says to show honor to women as the weaker vessel. Husbands, we are to live with our wives conduct ourselves in our marriages in such a way where we live with the understanding that God has called us to lay down our lives for our brides, and also understanding that the wife is the weaker vessel. Now we're going to deal with these two separately. So, ladies, I invite you to not tune out just yet because that word is assaulting to your ears. Stick with us. We're going to unpack it. But let's deal with these things separately. What, let's look at what God has called us to. See, in, in Peter saying, in him, what he wrote is living with the knowledge. So what we want to do is we want to look at both what kind of knowledge should men have of what God has called us to, and also what kind of knowledge should we have of our bride so that we can act accordingly. So what is it that God has called men to in marriage? What commands do we as men need to keep in mind so that we can live with our wives in an understanding way? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We read this last week. Many of you are familiar already with Ephesians 5. But there is great, clear instruction here for the marriage, for the home. Whenever you get to chapter 5, go down to verse 25. I'm going to go ahead and start reading here. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that's easy enough. No, it's not. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound and i am saying that it refers to Christ and the church wow i said last week that our marriages are real-life images of the gospel. I didn't make that up. This is where that idea comes from. Because Paul is saying here, I'm telling you that marriage is a metaphor for the gospel. It is a metaphor for the relationship between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. That alone ought to weigh heavily on us in our marriages. Just that idea. But let's kind of look at what Paul is talking about here. The first thing Paul directs men to do is to love their wives. And as I kind of alluded to, that seems easy enough until you see, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who can match Christ's matchless love? Husbands ought to. Well, that's a tall order now, isn't it? And truthfully, will we ever match the love of Christ? Of course not. He's an inexhaustible fountain of grace, mercy, and love. But we're supposed to emulate that love in the marriage. Christ laid down His life for His bride, leaving us an example. But so often, we won't even lay down our pride for our wives We're being really practical. Sometimes we won't even lay down the remote for our wives. You get home after a long day of work. You've been working since before she even woke up. Now that you're home, you just want to eat and sit in front of the TV and enjoy silence. After all, you've earned it. You worked hard today. You've been busting your back all day long to bring home the bacon. The least she could do is cook it. Your wife, though, she wants to talk. She has to tell you about something that happened in her day. What do you do? Maybe not now, all right? I had a long day. I just want to sit here and watch TV. Can I just please, you know, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Is that Laying down your pride. Is that laying down your life for your bride? Is that living with the knowledge that she has cares and concerns and needs that you are there to tend to? This might seem like a really small thing, but it is truthfully all of these small little ways in which we greatly make an impact on the way that our wives perceive us? Do your children know, well, don't go talk to dad right now. He's in a bad mood. You know who they learn that from is your wife. Don't go talk to your dad right now. He's, he's had a long day. Or do we lay down our pride and before we get into the house, before we turn off the vehicle, say, Lord Jesus, help me. I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I had a bad day, I'm frustrated, and I just want to go inside and sit down, but I know that I have to tend to my family, and I want to love you the way that you love your bride. Help me, Jesus. And then go in your home and love your family. Loving like Christ is a day in, day out, committing yourself to loving her well. Even when you've had a bad day. Even when you've had a long day. Even, get this, when she's wrong. Even when she's not exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit towards you, and so on and so forth. We are called by God to love our wives like God's Son loves His bride. Verse 26 from chapter 5 of Ephesians shows us that Christ gave himself up for his bride so that he might sanctify her by cleansing her with the word. In other words, husbands, how do you demonstrate Christ-like love to your wife? You lay down your life and you care deeply about her sanctification. You play an active role in her sanctification. Here, Christ is displaying this as he lays down his life for his bride. He spilled his blood for her so that she would be cleansed by this blood. Is that not an active role? Christ is playing in the sanctification of his bride. And in following suit, husbands must take an interest in the sanctification of their wives. How, what does that look like? Care what books she reads. Care what music she listens to. Care what friends she is surrounding herself with. Care if her Bible is covered in dust. Care if she doesn't want to go to church. Care and care deeply, so much so that you would, if push came to shove, spill your blood for it. Because that's what Christ did. Then show her you care. Not by lording over her, but by leading her to follow Christ. Verse 29 shows us that a husband displays this care and love as he nourishes and cherishes his wife as Christ does for the church. The word nourish here is more literally meaning to bring up from childhood, to provide food for. Paul uses the word again in chapter 6 verse 4 of Ephesians. In saying to fathers, there it's translated, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we get the idea of providing what someone needs to grow. More specifically, providing what your wife needs to flourish. Flourish how? Certainly to flourish in the Lord, in her spiritual growth. And also to flourish in her Womanhood. You do this by not not by telling her how to be a woman, or telling her to go get her hair done, or telling her to go buy nicer clothes, or by uh, telling her to go get her uh, pedicure done, but you do it by leading and loving her well. As you lead your family in all matters, but especially spiritual matters, coupled with you living it out yourself, You are providing for them, for your family and for your wife, what they need to flourish. Simply by design of you operating in your God-ordained role for you. Then, when he says cherish, it's a word that more literally means to soften by heat. To warm something up. This is how your love ought to be for your wife that it is warming, that it is nurturing, that it is nourishing. It's a place of comfort and safety for her. So it's in this way that we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. Rather, this is how we live with them in an understanding way. We know and understand what God has called us to do And we know and understand that our wives are the weaker vessel, so we love them tenderly in a nourishing and cherishing kind of way. Going back to last week's text about wives submitting to their husbands, let me ask you a rhetorical question. What wife would not want to submit to a husband like that? A husband that is laying his life down, laying his pride down? killing his flesh so that he can be free to love her and nourish her and care for her? What wife is not going to say, I'm happy to submit to this man? You see, it's so important that Peter includes this exhortation to the men because women could easily hear the command to submit to their husbands and say, well, you know, I want to obey the Lord, but I just don't know what my husband is going to do with that submission. What if he takes advantage of his authority? And in reality, because we live in a sinful world, indeed he might. Indeed, men have and do. But that is why we have the complementary command to men, and that must be heeded equally. Men are not to abuse their authority in their homes. They're not to lord over their wives, but lovingly lead them. Live with your wife in a way that you show her honor as the weaker vessel, but not in a way that constantly reminds her that she's the weaker vessel. What does this phrase mean anyway? Why is Peter calling women the weaker vessel? Because God has designed men and women differently. Women naturally are caring and loving and nurturing and cherishing in their love. Thus, the directions for women are not to love and care and nurture their husband because this is indigenous to their personalities. Women are more naturally going to exude that sort of love in the marriage without being told to. Thus, the directions for women are not to love and care but to submit. Men, however, are not naturally as loving and caring and Thoughtful as women. That's just the truth, men. We know we're not. And so we need to be directed to be this way because our wives need it. But even in calling women the weaker vessel, Peter directs men to show honor to their wives. Think of fine china. Think of stemware. I don't know if you have a grandma that has the huge... China cabinet full of the delicate, precious china in it that if you ever touch it, it collapses into dust. At least that's how she makes it seem because it's always tucked away. And don't, don't even look at it because it's so delicate. Don't even look over there. Well, Grandma, it's covered in dust. Okay, carry on. Think of the fine china. Think of stemware. These are delicate items that are treated with great care. They're often stored in special places and even displayed for everyone to see. They are fragile, and as such, they are prone to breaks and cracks. But you'd never think of your fine china as weak and worthless, would you? In fact, it's the opposite. It's valuable to you. But it's valuable. That doesn't mean, though, that you'd ever take your fine china out when you need to find some vessels to fill with dirt and mud for the holes that you need to dig in the backyard, would you? You'd never think of it. Does this devalue the fine china, though? Of course not. The fine china was not made for those purposes. The bucket is. Men are like buckets. That's not a good line, is it? Put that on a t-shirt. The point is that men are built and made for different purposes than women. This does not mean that women are less than. It doesn't mean even that women are not as smart as men. In fact, many women are smarter than men. It just means that we are designed for different purposes. Women are not less valuable, and they're not any less worthy of honor. Simply means for men, as men, that we are to care for and honor our wives in a manner that demonstrates our understanding that she was not made to bear the burden of leadership. You are. Your wife was not meant to bear the burden of guiding the family. You are. That's what you're there for. She's a precious vessel. In fact, she's so precious that Christ spilled his blood for her. Number two, let's look at how a godly husband views his wife. Part C, the third part. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. What is an heir? An heir is someone who receives some form of property or possession from a predecessor after their death. In other words, it's someone who receives an inheritance. Well, if you remember early on in chapter 1 that Peter spoke of an inheritance that we all are recipients of as children of God. He's saying that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then in verse 4 he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Further, Peter often uses the word grace in reference to not just God's general grace, you know, his, his giving of undeserved gifts to his children, but more specifically, his special grace, that is, the kind of grace that leads to salvation. The grace that brings life. The grace of life as Peter says it here. We are told that the prophets searched and inquired about the grace that would be brought to us. That was verse 10 of chapter 1. We're told to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the second coming of Christ. And then, of course, in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter tells his audience that he has written declaring that this is the true grace of God. So what's the point of me saying all of this? That we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Our wives, if they are believers, are part of the church that Christ laid his life down for. So we sort of see that there's a, a double reason to love her as one who belongs to Christ Jesus, one that he suffered for, and also to love her then as Christ loves the church. I love what Paul Washer said, quote, The basis of my marriage is this. I have been called by God with an irrevocable calling to lay down my life for a certain daughter of his. End quote. Men, do you think of your wife that way? Do you think of her that way? I have to lay down my life for her because she belongs to God. This is an essential element, especially for those days, because as you remember, we said last week that wives were really viewed as second-class citizens in the culture. So when Peter is telling the wives to submit to their husbands, For them, that might not really be anything new because they were accustomed to having to live that way. But you know what would have been entirely, absolutely paradigm shifting? is elevating women to where we are now co-heirs of the same grace of life. In other words, women don't have some lesser form of salvation than men. We are equal co-heirs of the exact same inheritance. And it's the inheritance that is being kept in heaven, locked away for us. It's not just for men, it's for women too. Women don't get the scraps that are left over after the men have claimed the lion's share. Women are on equal footing before the Lord God Almighty to receive this blessed inheritance. So then, husbands are not to treat their wives as second-class citizens, as the culture did at that time, but as equal citizens of Heaven, our culture is constantly telling us that Christianity is just so oppressive to women. And that for women to submit to their husbands, this is a moral imperative of a bygone era. It's 2021. A woman is the vice president of the United States. Women have been freed from the cruel oppression and slavery of being housewives. But in reality, Christianity, the Bible... God-fearing men, God himself, these do not have any desire to oppress women, to demean women, to lord over women, to strip women of dignity, but instead to elevate women, namely Christian women, to the highest position that humans could hold. What is that? Co-heirs of the inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us. A godly husband then, does not want to put his woman in her place where she belongs, but he desires to take her by the hand and lovingly lead her into the fullness of all that God has for her. Lastly, why must a godly husband live this way? The last part. Let's look at it together. So that... Your prayers may not be hindered. Peter writes that we are all to do, that men are to do all of this so that our prayer before God will not be hindered. So we're clear. The word hindered here is referring to being held back from accomplishing something. Do you want to know how important it is to God that men live this way, that husbands follow this direction? If you are living in opposition to this text, God will not hear your prayers. Wait, what? God hears everybody's prayers. God answers everyone's prayers. No, he doesn't. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah nine two. But your iniquities, listen, if your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. This goes for unrepentant sin in general and most certainly the sin of mistreating your wife, of not living according to what God calls you and commands you to do in marriage. Men, this is a very simple but very serious charge. If you live in opposition to this text, if I live in opposition to this text, if we do not apply this to our marriage, we will be living in such a way that we no longer have God's ear. Our prayers will be hindered. I want to give us a final word of exhortation. Men specifically, marriage is a high calling. Whether you've been married for 50 years or 50 days, or you hope to one day get married, We must feel the weight of the high call of being a husband. We must not allow ourselves to fall into the trap of complacency where you get up, you go to work, come home, you watch TV, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to work, you come home, You watch, you understand the point. You see, to obey this text, it is going to require of you active participation in your every single day life. That means today, that means Monday, that means Friday, that means Thursday, that means September 5th, that means October 54th, if there's ever such a day. Every single day of the week, That you are actively killing your flesh, laying down your pride, laying down your life for your bride. It requires active, not passive participation in your marriage. Think about this. Think about the first man who ever lived. Adam. Think of how he demonstrated passivity. Genesis 3.6 tells us that when Eve took a bite of the forbidden fruit, she turned to Adam to give him some. Listen to what the text says. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. See, Adam didn't fall when he took the bite of the forbidden fruit. Adam fell when he wasn't there to protect his wife. He wasn't there Or he was right there, rather. He was just watching. But he did nothing to stop Eve from listening to the serpent twist God's words into a knot. It was a passive man who stood idly by as he watched the serpent deceive his wife. And it is a passive man today who stands idly by as their wives are deceived by every wind and wave of cultural trend, every wind and wave of theological innovation, and she gets carried off by those winds and waves without a word from her husband, and it happened on your clock. Men, let it not be so of us. Listen, I have no desire to bash you today if you've been failing in this area. I don't want to put you down. But instead, what I want to do here is call you up to the high calling of being a husband, of being a man of God. We cannot do it alone. We need the power and guidance of the indwelling Holy Spirit to shape and form us into the men that God has called us to be. But trust this man, When you set your heart to follow the Lord, when you set your heart to obey what God has commanded, when you set your heart to live a life honoring to the Lord, He will honor that. God has called husbands to live in light of His revealed will for marriage, caring for and loving our wives well, knowing they are co-heirs with us of the same blessed inheritance that we have been given in Christ Jesus. May Christ be glorified as we apply this text to our lives. Let's stand. As always, we're going to pray. We're going to sing a song. And we'll be dismissed. And I just want to remind you, this time is not just a time to hear a song but to really let God's word deal with you, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the clarity with which your word speaks. We thank you, Lord, that you have designed such a beautiful, a beautiful thing in marriage. Lord, we want to have godly marriages that are made up of godly wives and godly husbands, We don't ever want to look at your word and say, well, that's too hard. Who can do that? I'm not going to do it. We want to look at your word and we want to feel the weight of what you call us to and allow that weight not to cause us to feel overburdened, but allow the weight to draw us, cause us to fall to our knees before you, feeling hopeless that if you don't show up, God, we can't do it. We need you. Lord, I pray that we would be men who are strong in the spirit but are so aware of our weakness that we would be weak before you lord pleading for your help because we know lord as you have promised that when we seek you with our whole heart we will find you i pray that we would be men and women who seek and find the lord this week we pray this in the name of jesus amen